Hi, I'm Linda van Tolberg and welcome again to Nutshell, where we look at the stories and interviews featured in the past week on Biz News. This week, South Africans were told by the Constitutional Court that they can no longer turn around in the car when mayhem is breaking out on the back seat and shout, well, if you do that again, you will most definitely get a club. Or you may still threaten, but if they continue, you can't go ahead and sort them out in a physical way. Well, personally, I don't believe in punishing children that way, as that little boy grows into the Incredible Hulk at 16, may I add, smelly and sulky. And teaching him manners before that in a gentler way works better. But it set Twitter alight with South Africans keenly jumping in, calling the country a nanny state without nanny abilities. The other topic that is being debated fiercely is the imposition of prescribed assets on private pension savings that is being considered by the ANC. The Post Office's Mark Barnes defended the ANC decision, saying it cannot be assumed that the money raised by prescribed assets will be wasted. But Andrew Cantor from Futuregrove would have none of it and told Business it's a cheap ploy to get capital into politically favoured projects. For prescribed assets is when basically government makes regulation that tells pension funds that they must have a minimum holding of certain assets or asset classes. So in the case you're talking about where in the, at the tail end of the apartheid government, the government prescribed that, that 53% of pension fund assets had to be in government bonds or SOE bonds. Um, so what, what's the consequence of that? Well, it's, the consequence is it takes away investment choice, it skews asset allocations, and ultimately it's been proven that that period in South African history cost pension fund uh, holders quite a lot of money. They could have gotten much higher returns with a normal asset allocation, with a normal allocation to, say, equities or properties. So there's no, it's no surprise then that pensioners are not very happy about the talk that prescribed assets are coming back. Well, indeed. And in fact, that South African experience is not what you call, call disastrous because, I mean, the returns were earned and the government ultimately paid back the debt. But if you look more broadly globally, uh, there's no global experience where any any case of the government really t- prescribing what pension funds had to do was beneficial for those investors in the long run. Um, I mean, in the disastrous cases like Egypt, Nigeria, Zambia, uh, even Namibia and Ghana, there are huge losses. And in the benign cases like Singapore, Malaysia and Sweden, there was just a, a, a minor diminution of returns. But, you know, it's really it looks to me like a money grab it looks to me like uh, a political a political system where rather than take hard decisions to make uh, make uh, choices about how to run uh, government departments and state-owned enterprises so that they can properly access capital through a free, free fair and efficient capital market uh, they're trying to skew it so they can get easy access to cheap capital and what does cheap capital mean it means lower returns to pension fund investors below what they should earn in a free market so there shouldn't be any prescribed asset requirements. I want to say Mark wasn't pro-prescription. Uh, Mark was pro-development. And there is a counter-argument that every, all of us, as citizens, as taxpayers, even as pension fund investors, feel we need to do something to, to help South African development through this difficult period of low, low growth, high unemployment, inequality is growing. And we all want to play a part in that. And I think what people forget, they're muddling up the, the good intention and the, and the goal with the methodology. The methodology of telling people how to invest is a, would it be a complete distortion of the capital market that we have. And we have a really great pension and savings industry and asset management industry. And I know there have been notable failures uh, where, where things weren't spotted and corporate governance failures have occurred. But broadly speaking, it is a great national asset to have an independent, free and fair uh, capital allocation mechanism so that savings can flow into investments. And that's the key economic equation. More savings equals more money available for investments. And if you, if you start messing around with people's pension fund savings, and we're seeing it already, we're seeing it already, people are already nervous about saving in their pension fund. We've seen people quit their jobs to crystallize their pension fund to take it out of government.
government's potential hands. If you reduce the savings culture, you reduce savings and you increase the cost of money, the cost of capital, the interest rates, if you will, across the entire economy. Pension funds are already investing heavily into government bonds and, well, gilts and semi-gilts, uh, Eskom stock, etc. Is, isn't that something to take into account that, in fact, they're already in those, uh, those, those vehicles? It is part of the ridiculousness, ridiculousness of this whole proposal. There are two assumptions underneath the concept of prescription. The first assumption is that the problem is a shortage of money for development. That is absolutely untrue. South Africa has a, a large capital market, a large savings industry. If the government brings an intelligent, sustainable SOEs or developmental proposals or developmental projects, there is plenty of money to fund it and the second assumption under prescription is that if you don't force pension funds to do it, they won't do it. That is utter rubbish. We've been doing development investment in future for 25 years. We've never had a shortage of money or a shortage of support from investors. Now, go to, going to your point, going to your point about that pension funds are already doing it, right now, rough statistics, and they get out of date quickly, maybe it's 18-month-old statistics, roughly about 25% of, of private pension funds in South Africa today are invested in government bonds, SOEs, or other tangible developmental assets, 25%. It's through the GEPF, by the way. The government employees pension fund goes up to 34%. So what are you going to prescribe? Uh, in fact, I heard a, I heard a funny joke uh, the other day. Somebody said they should prescribe that we have to use the all bond index as a, as a benchmark because it's all government bonds and SOE bonds. So I mean, we all the joke being we all use the all bond index as our as our bond index. So 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 what is prescription for? What's the point? What are we trying to accomplish? And and I have to given all the rational evidence of its of its utter failure of the of the lack of need for it. The truth being, there's a lack of deals, not a lack of money. I just see it as, as, as a political ploy to channel uh, a, an easy and weak source of capital into favored, politically favored developmental areas. I mean, I don't know, maybe, some, maybe somebody thinks they want to channel pension money into rural development in a certain province where you and I know it'll go and it will never come back from because it's a political movement on your pension fund. And that's why people are justifiably scared. But there was also something to unite us. The Ndlovo Youth Choir that just missed out on winning America's Got Talent and their final version of the Toto song definitely makes me sitting in London long for rain and thunderstorms over Africa. The fear that you may miss Africa is not deterring South Africans wanting to become American citizens or dual citizens. Business spoke to U.S. immigration lawyer Bernie Wolstoff about the rush for U.S. EB-5 visas ahead of a radical hike in the amount you have to invest. And he has a message for those that think immigrants are sellouts. Many South Africans are currently very interested in looking at this opportunity, the possibility that their children will be studying at an Ivy League university abroad and to provide this kind of opportunity. So honestly, we have been so busy. Uh, if I sound a little crazy, it's because I'm not getting enough sleep and uh, meeting with clients literally from morning till night. And here's the reason why. At the moment, the EB-5 or Immigrant Investor Program involves an investment of $500,000, but we have an unusual president. Uh, his name is President Donald Trump, and he's a businessman, and he has increased the price, the minimum investment, from 500000 to 900000 effective November 21, 2019. So we have this little window of about, to literally two months in which you can buy the Mercedes-Benz at uh, 40% of the price. And it's worse than that because at the moment, 
we can invest in what they call top-level projects and not have to go into rural areas. So in reality, to get the kind of projects and investments that are currently available after November 20 will cost 1.8 million, 350% increase. So that's why I'm here. Uh, the news is spreading rapidly. Um, it's kind of almost like a feeding frenzy right now. And um, this is the door that is closing. It's a little bit sad. Uh, maybe some president in the future will open it, but um, America is not as welcoming, welcoming as it has been. Bernie, I've, so, got a, yeah. I've got a couple of pals, uh, in fact, uh, four friends of mine, South Africans, who went into a um, low employment area in California. They invested around about uh, five million rand each, and they built quite a nice business there. Is that what you're talking about here, the EB-5 visa? In other words, bring entrepreneurs to the United States with their money, and we'll make it nice for them to stay. You know, it, 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 it's a little bit of a complex uh, program to explain in a few minutes, but the bottom line goes something like this. If you make a half a million dollar investment into a job producing, people get confused. It's not so much the investment. They want to see job creation uh, everywhere. The United States, everywhere in the world wants to see jobs being created. So this money is not sort of put into a bank. This money has to go into a job creating enterprise, what we call the JCE. And uh, if so what they do is they give you a two-year conditional green card, and then after two years, you have to have the condition removed. Then you get the full green card, and then after five years, so now we're sort of six, seven years down the road, you can apply to be an American citizen or, as I explained to all my South African clients, a dual citizen. Bernie, just to go back into the basics of all of this, if South Africans are looking to get to the United States, perhaps to live there at some stage in future, or perhaps not. If, if the EB-5 visa gets you in, do you have to go? Do you have to follow your money there? There are rules and regulations, of course. And the rule is if you have a green card, you are expected to live in the United States. But the good news is that there's something called a re-entry permit. Uh, sometimes we call it the white passport. South Africans actually like it because you can get visas in it almost easier than getting a visa in a South African passport because they know once you have a green card, then um, obviously uh, you know, you've got a place where you permanently resided called residing called uh, the United States so that they're not worried that you're going to jump ship as it were. But the simple bottom line is that they expect you to live in the United States. The re-entry permit does allow you to be out for up to two years at a time, and that can be renewed for another two years, and then one year at a time. I have seen people renew it year after year after year, but I also like to be very direct with my clients. Um, I don't like to butter things up. It's a hassle to go through this because, you know, you have to have filing fees and lawyers and, uh, you know, kind of stuff. But the reentry permit is possible, and the truth is we're doing a lot for the South Africans because the life here is still pretty good. And most of my clients continue to have business interests here. So one of the things that I would like to point out to those of them who see immigrating as not being loyal 
is that many of us South Africans, many of the South African businesses continue to grow their businesses in South Africa. Global trade is a good thing. Having South Africans abroad who are doing business with South Africa, import, export, development. This is a global economy with a computer you can work anywhere in the world. So this is where the world is going This EB-5 green card opens the door and numerous opportunities to people who can do it. But unfortunately, uh, this is expensive. Half a million uh, today's uh, exchange rate uh, is uh, is a hell of a lot of money. Um, But I will point out that some people see it as a currency hedge. I'm not a currency specialist, and I don't give any advice on that topic. But I do know that three years ago, the rand was worth a lot more. Have you heard of a search fund as a model of investing? It's not venture capital, private equity or a normal investing model, but a model that brings out the entrepreneur out of the corporate johnnies. And it's ideally suited to sub-Saharan Africa, according to Brendan Mullen from Secha Capital. We kind of get back to the basics of, of investing. It's, it's almost, you know, more natural, you know, biomimicry type of investing. And that's the, the search fund model. Um, so the search fund model is very popular in the U.S. and increasingly in Europe. Uh, it's generally some whip smart uh, young person from you know, McKinsey, Bain, where I used to work, um, or an MBA wants to become a CEO early. So it's referred to as uh, entrepreneurship through acquisition. You raise a little bit of capital and you go find a, uh, a company to, to buy. It's often in kind of boring, fragmented sectors, maybe family run and it's doing all right. And you then apply your, your kind of MBA skills to increase margins, do a little bit of marketing to increase revenues, uh, upskill the team. And then a few years later, you sell it off at a, at a higher valuation. In the interim, of course, you know, creating jobs, uh, upskilling the, the management team um, and creating financial returns. Uh, and, you know, we hear a lot about the, the, the various tech investments that are getting front page news. And that is great. Uh, but what I'm, I contend is let's, let's, you know, utilize this, this search fund model because I think it's actually a much better fit for the, uh, the sub-Saharan African, uh, impact investing and investing space than a lot of the other models that we kind of copy and paste from Silicon Valley in the U.S. I really like this from a South African perspective. Uh, given that uh, many people are emigrating, <laughs> you would presume a lot of these people own businesses. They want to get out of the businesses. They'd like to get a partner who's going to go in there and, who knows, maybe rejuvenate it. Are you seeing that the demand uh, is being met or is, is, that there's sufficient supply, in other words, of these businesses for the mm-hmm. demand, which must be high? So I think that's a great question. So it's a two-sided market. I think you've hit on it. And there's a duality to this additionality, right? So, again, to, to the refrain is it's entrepreneurship through acquisition, or what we're trying to do with such a capital, it's entrepreneurship through kind of the investor operator model. And I can get to that later, but, but to answer your question is, is yes, uh, that we have, you know, South Africa's best and brightest are not going into entrepreneurship. They're not going to SMEs. SMEs cannot afford, you know, attract, retain, develop, uh, these, these best and brightest, you know, the UCT grads, the, the you know, the UJ, the VITs, uh, because we also have these multinationals that are here. So, you know, we have, you know, the KPMGs of the world, you know, the, again, the, the Baines of the world. Um, and, and that's where people, you know, are excited to go. But what if we give them a route to entrepreneurship that's, you know, kind of lower risk, uh, that doesn't require a ton of capital? And then they, too, can become entrepreneurs. So that duality of developing an entrepreneurial ecosystem and developing the SME ecosystem is win-win for uh, the 
the entrepreneur and for South Africa. So what kind of numbers are you talking about? How much is lent typically to the entrepreneur who'd be using this capital to invest in the business they're going to be working in? Sure, it, it varies, uh, but it's generally kind of angel investing type, you know, type money. Um, in this, in this environment, you know, five, ten million rand would be plenty to buy a majority stake in, a, in an SME. I can tell you at, at such a capital where we're kind of a, a scaled search fund, an accelerated search fund. So we don't take ownership stakes, but we take minority stakes. Our first fund is, is very small for the quote unquote private equity. It's a 50 million rand fund. We've invested in six companies to date. Uh, we've increased top line on average 5x. Margins are increasing, and we've been, uh, we've created 70 jobs. 5x. And that's just over three years. Yep. 5x uh, you know, is five Some times. of them we're buying in at, you know, they're, you know, they're doing 800k a year. Others are doing, you know, 30, 30 million rand uh, top line a year. Uh, but that's where the opportunity is, this large pipeline of SMEs that are otherwise ignored by your more, you know, traditional capital providers. Again, when we copy and paste a, a private equity buyout model from the U.S. and we have a billion dollar fund, uh, in, in South Africa, that limits the amount of companies that you can invest in. And then generally the people working for your fund are, you know, they look like me, but maybe 10, 20 years older. They're, they're white guys, gray hair, and they're deal makers. What I'm saying is let's do more search funds. Well, let's get younger entrepreneurs in there. And then that also increases the diversity of people in finance and developing these management skills. It's, it's amazing. Every time there's something in a society that you think you know what's going on, i.e. in South Africa, there are many people who feel the economy is falling and people are immigrating and the skills are leaving the country. You get something like this, which shows you that's not actually the case. Well, I echo your optimism. And, and I think it's because, you know, this is, if you look at it from a, returns and impacts perspective, you could see it as kind of financial and human capital arbitrage, right? Where else, you know, and so it's such as a 12J. So it kind of enables us to to write these smaller checks. So the average investment fund is not writing a 3 million rand check, a 5 million rand check. Um, and like I said, the average UCT uh, bits grad is not working at SME. So if you can kind of, you know, go into these markets that are fragmented, that are ignored, that are quote unquote boring, and, you know, work with the existing entrepreneurs who are already great. They just need a little bit of help. You know, that's that's where something truly great can happen. And again, I like the additionality of it. So Native Child is our first investment. It's natural hair care for black women. So every brand that uh, so when Setsa invested in Native Child, that's money that maybe would have been otherwise sent offshore. Right. High net worth individuals looking to bypass tax. So that goes to Native Child. Now, every brand that's spent on Native Child product stays in South Africa. It stays in this ecosystem, whereas otherwise maybe buy a Unilever product or L'Oreal product and it goes to Europe or the U.S. So I like this kind of additionality, this multiplier effect of this search fund model that Setcha borrowed from. The radical shake up at Breit, which includes removing the management, got people talking. Christa Visser is part of a shareholder group which plans to raise 3 billion rand in a share sale and dispose of all of its assets except Virgin Active. The markets responded favorably and break shares jumped by 6%. Another big fetch that caught our eye this week was Richmond that took a 6% knock, wiping out around 2 billion Swiss franc off its value. David Shapiro investigated why this had happened. I picked up a story that UBS have downgraded them. and They looked at all the... They looked at all the luxury companies, uh, which is Richmond, so 
they obviously I haven't seen the report because it came out this morning. I've got to go and dig for the report uh, on why they downgraded Richmond, but they've also downgraded Swatch. So it's it seems to be Swiss watch companies that they've downgraded, and yet they've revised their targets, and it seems to be in a positive way for both Kering and LVMH. And LVMH is a luxury company. In other words, it's accessory bags and shoes and. Uh, liquor and etc. So um, there's something that's worrying them, something that's worrying the market on the mainly on the watch side, as opposed to luxury as a as as a theme. So I think that's why we've seen them knock today. But that doesn't seem fair. People who've seen no. the UBS report mm-hmm. get this, sell the shares, and the rest of us have to find out yeah, second. And I, thankfully, we've got a friend in David Shapiro who can. Tell <laughs> him, most people wouldn't have a clue. No, I know. I, well, you see what happens here. That's, that's what we do is, is when I see unusual movements like Richmond, I'm saying, you know, I like Richmond. Why is it down like that? And then we start to dig. And you go onto Google and Google tells you somewhere along the way that they've uh, downgraded it. So I've, I've yet to go and find out the exact reason why they have downgraded and, uh, um, you know, look, you know, research is something, it's, it's an analyst opinion, and I don't know whether that's really um, in the public domain. So it's some analyst opinion that has caused it, not really anything to do with the company. And that's what we have to estimate and, and, and look at. But I would attribute it to the fact that uh, uh, they have quite a, you know, I mean, some big names like UBS do have a powerful, uh, you know, can, can uh, sway markets. It must be quite ego-boosting for the analyst who wrote that report. Oh, yeah. You see billions and billions of dollars taken off the stock. But we, tell, tell us about yeah. NASPERS and Process, Dave. Do I'm I, looking uh, at NASPERS and saying, my yeah. goodness, this is now very cheap, and you should be buying it I, in South Africa. I agree with you. You know, I, first of all, they came on a week ago, and I mean, we came on with such a lot of fanfare. We saw Process go up to 100 you know, 1,200. Uh, NASPES itself was uh, doing pretty well. I mean, adjusting for process. And then just the last day or two, I think we've seen big, big selling. And I can't understand because all the reports and views that uh, we've, you know, collected have all been really positive. And I think people are looking exceptionally, um, you know, positively on the outlook. So why they've come under so much pressure in the last two days um, is a, a bit of a mystery that that uh, someone with big holdings should be getting out and and Alec they're dominating trade in a big way on the JSE. Um, each day over the last couple of uh, three or four days, they've they've uh, added up to about thirty to thirty five percent of the value traded on the JSE. So even today, I took out the numbers. Uh, NASPERS making up 23% of trade. It's down over 3% in process, 2.5% down on 10% of trade. So 33% of the volumes we see are attributed to those and doing a lot of damage to the index. Hmm. It's also, I suppose, giving you a different perspective on the JSE itself because there were many <clears> who, who got out of the JSE stock on the concern that the split would see reductions in the trading volumes, which is, of course, a half <laughs> Well, I think for the meantime, we're still, it's still trying to settle down. So I would imagine we'll see this for some time. But uh, you know, take, take it away, our market would be very, very quiet at the moment.
Well, most of us will not be able to afford a luxury watch or handbag from Richmond, but we may soon all have the luxury of super-fast internet as 5G has reached the South African shores. Now, that's one of the advantages of the developing world. We can leapfrog the developed world and install new technology. The company that is the first out of the blocks is Rain. Its CEO, Willem Roos, told Alec Hogg from Biz News that he had been working hard to bring faster and cheaper internet to South Africa. So 5G is the next generation wireless uh, technology uh, that the worldwide standards bodies have uh, agreed on. And it really is around three pillars, Alec. The first is a massive increase in speed and capacity. Uh, so it's just much, much faster than 4G, up to 10 times faster and probably 20, 30, 40 times the capacity uh, per tower that you set up. In future, uh, 5G holds a fantastic promise because you can connect millions of Internet of Things devices to the network without slowing it down and bogging it down. And sorry for a few technical terms, but then you get stuff like critical machine-to-machine communication and high availability. And that can really introduce uh, sort of some of the promise of the fourth industrial revolution. We're talking about smart cities, virtual and augmented reality, drone deliveries, and so on. Those things are a bit in the future, though. For ordinary South Africans at this point in time, 5G, I suppose, really means super or ultra-fast Internet at your home at a, at a really affordable price. Um, and because it's wireless, uh, the installation is, is very easy. It's very simple. You just buy a router and you plug it in, and you're immediately connected uh, to the Internet. And, um, you know, studies have shown, Alec, that if you increase broadband penetration in a country, you also get a bit of a lift in economic growth. And that's really something I think we need in South Africa. Where can one pick it up and and how do you go about doing that and what differences are you going to see? All right. So it's uh, actually quite simple. The first phase is we've actually approached our own internal clients, the selected few clients whom we know live in uh, good coverage areas, and we'll be approaching them to see if they don't want unlimited Internet at home. You'll get speeds up to 700 megabits a second for, for a thousand bucks a month. That's, hang, uh, hang on, hang on, hang on, Willem, hang on. <laughs> 700 megs. Now, I was in the UK and we had fiber there and we got to 180 megs. 700, that, that's off the charts. It is off the charts, uh, Alec. It is, it is truly a revolutionary uh, technology. And, and I suppose that's, 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 that's why, um, you know, we're so excited about it. So we, we think a client should get at least 200 uh, and, and get up to 700 if they're in really good radio conditions. It remains a radio network. So um, we obviously can't guarantee an exact speed. But, but, but certainly you should see uh, speeds in excess of uh, 200 megabits. Um, so once we're confident that everything is humming nicely, in the next couple of weeks we'll open it up to anybody who lives in our coverage area. You'll be able to simply go to our website, see if you've got 5G coverage, uh, and you just order it straight there. We deliver a router to your home for free. We've got a launch for our clients, it's only a thousand, and for the future, it'll be a little bit more expensive uh, once once we go live to to the public. But given that you have no other installation costs, that's really really good value for money. Uh, the router's got the latest Wi-Fi six, so you have a very fast network in your home as well. And uh, you know, if, uh, you you join, you go through a quick recap process, and uh, and off you go. 
Uh, at this stage, we estimated we provide coverage at close to 500,000 homes already in uh, Joburg and Swane. And over the next couple of years, we'll uh, try and expand to most of the metro areas in South Africa. Just very quickly, what suburbs uh, in those areas? Because I'm sure people are listening now and saying, hey, I'm in Bryanston. Am I going to be able to get this? Go to the website. We, we don't have the coverage map live at this point in time. So what we've done, uh, Alec, is you can leave your name and detail and capture the address where you're going to use 5G. And the moment you get into uh, coverage, uh, we'll uh, contact you and, and, and see if we can't get you hooked up. Okay, so Willem, I am now moving home. Uh, I shouldn't be putting in fiber. Is this what you're telling me? Because fiber will give me maybe 100 megabytes. With you, I could get yeah, at, at least 200 and maybe even 700. Most most fiber connections uh, uh, max out at 100. Uh, there, there is some fiber providers who can uh, do uh, give you more, uh, but our view is that 5G is a really really good alternative to the last mile of fiber. Fiber is still very important, Alec. We need to get fiber to all of the 5G towers because, you know, that's the only medium that has the, the true uh, big uh, capacity. But, uh, you know, we, we question whether it's really necessary anymore to go and dig up all the roads and go through your garden and try and get this fiber strand into, uh, into your home. Uh, once the 5G tower is up in your area, you will get speeds that are uh, in excess of the vast majority of fiber connections that are currently available. That has been the Biz News Big Stories of the Week. In a nutshell, I leave you with the Global Choir's rendition of Africa by Toto.